I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Ingrid Katz from the Division of Women's Health, Infectious Diseases, and Medical Communications at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Dr. Katz has co-authored a perspective article on the transition from PEPFAR-funded to government-funded HIV care in South Africa. Dr. Katz, why did South Africa get off to such a late start in responding to the AIDS epidemic, and what then finally turned the tide? So many people really consider the explosion of the AIDS epidemic in South Africa to be an unfortunate catastrophe of timing. Just as HIV was really reaching pandemic levels in South Africa in the 1990s, the country was really undergoing tremendous political change. It was the end of apartheid, and Nelson Mandela was taking office, but he only served for one term. So he was replaced by then-President Thabo Mbeke, who came into power in 1999. And he and his Minister of Health really questioned the relationship between the HIV virus and AIDS. And he and his minister really essentially denied access to care and treatment for people living with HIV at that time. So. Many people have felt that during that time, South Africa really took a huge step backwards in terms of what was happening with people living with HIV. In terms of turning the tide, really it came from a very large community living in South Africa. Activists like the Treatment Action Campaign ultimately brought a lawsuit against the South African government to allow mothers living with HIV to receive treatment to prevent transmission to the newborn. And then researchers and clinicians who were very actively involved in treating people living with HIV petitioned to get treatment to people living with HIV. A few other things turned the tide in the late 1990s and early 2000s. One was the International AIDS Conference that took place in Durban in 2000 that brought together a large community of activists and leaders in the field who really demanded that change be brought to South Africa. And it was at that meeting that Peter Piot said we need to speak in the B word and not the M word, so we need billions of dollars invested, not millions of dollars. And ultimately, that, among many other factors, led to the creation of PEPFAR in 2003 that to date is still the largest funder for any single health-related disease in the world. In South Africa, what has PEPFAR done? What's the system of care for patients with HIV that's been put in place by PEPFAR? South Africa was unique in terms of being a recipient for PEPFAR. Since the government essentially supported more denialist beliefs, they had to work outside of traditional community health centers or government-funded centers and work with researchers, clinicians, and even activists to set up other programs that were considered by many to be much more vertical-type programs that provided comprehensive care for people living with HIV. And this was really set up as a parallel system to government-funded clinics because, at the time, the government really was not prepared to work with a large funder like PEPFAR to scale up treatment. In a perspective essay about a South African patient with HIV and extremely drug-resistant tuberculosis, Babaria notes that PEPFAR in South Africa has broad effects on healthcare systems beyond HIV-AIDS, building a new healthcare workforce, advancing care for many other conditions. In your work in South Africa, what effects have you seen? 
I was fortunate to speak with many people when we were doing research for this piece and get a sense of how PEPFAR has really trickled out to many other types of care being provided. And I recall a quote from Professor Francois Venter, who's the Deputy Executive Director at the Reproductive Health and HIV Institute at the University of Watersrand S, describing PEPFAR and its programs as almost aspirational state for better care. And I think that was really what came about throughout South Africa and in many of the PEPFAR-focused countries. People widely described that PEPFAR put into place hard, quantifiable measures of care that ultimately became a model for care beyond care provided for people living with HIV. Your research shows that even under PEPFAR, nearly one in five HIV-infected people in Soweto who were eligible to receive antiretroviral therapy refused to actually start treatment. So why is that? That's a great question, and this is an area of new research that's rapidly evolving. We found that in 2009, 20% of people who came in and got tested for HIV in an urban testing center in Soweto and were ultimately found to be eligible for treatment, they were HIV positive and eligible for treatment, refused to initiate care. And this is despite the fact that PEPFAR had already been in the country for five years and there was widely available treatment at that point that was free. So at this point, it's been an area that many people, including our group, are continuing to explore in Soweto and beyond to see if this is just a South Africa-specific phenomenon or if it moves beyond these borders and really try to understand why people are making these decisions and what the long-term health outcomes are of these decisions. And is PEPFAR and are the PEPFAR-funded clinics trying to do something to change this? So this has been a bit of a challenging area to address by large funders really because it's a snapshot of decision-making prior to treatment initiation. And in HIV research, we speak about the cascade of care from the time people think about getting tested all the way through to long-term adherence to medication. And when you think about this snapshot, we're talking about the time prior to treatment initiation. And most large funders, including PEPFAR and the Global Fund, really start that time clock at the time people say, yes, I want to start taking treatment. So it's more challenging to think about how to address this group of people who have not decided they're ready to initiate care. As you point out in your article, PEPFAR has now reduced its funding for South Africa and patients are being transitioned to government-funded clinics. What then are the main concerns about the future of their care and the challenges that South Africa faces? On the ground, this really means that people have to determine individually how to safely transition patients to multiple local clinics. And many of these clinics have made this transition without any further funding for research to follow up with these individuals to see how they're doing in new places for care. A lot of patients have expressed concern about what their care will be like in new settings. Certainly, there have been many discussions about loss of anonymity if going to a local clinic. And many people are aware that there are often stockouts of medications. Again, not intrinsically due to PEPFAR, but just the nature of the system that still needs to be ramped up. So stockouts can lead to long lines at clinic. 
can lead to potentially missed dosages and certainly more frequent visits to clinic to need to get access to medication. So there's a lot of challenges and a lot of concerns in place when people think about transitioning care for nearly 2 million people who were started on treatment under PEPFAR. And what about other sub-Saharan African countries that have been receiving PEPFAR funds? Is South Africa meant to be a pilot in this sort of transitioning? South Africa is really the first to be able to decrease PEPFAR funding because it's really the first country that has been increasingly shouldering the cost of its care, really ever since current President Zuma came into office, they've been shouldering a large proportion, the vast majority of funding going into HIV-related care. They also have an incredible infrastructure in South Africa that many other countries do not have at this time. So South Africa is first because, as most people say, they're able to do this. I think ultimately the hope is that, yes, many other countries will follow PEPFAR was created as an emergency fund for AIDS relief. And so many people are saying that we have addressed the emergency and it's time to think about long-term sustainability that should be country-driven. Speaking of long-term sustainability, HIV treatment initiatives, for the moment at any rate, have no foreseeable endpoint. So how can the global health community address the HIV epidemic so as to secure ongoing financial support in the circumstances that you describe? So that's really the $24 million question. Ultimately, the goal is to have country ownership in providing care for individual populations living with HIV. But as you said, there are still over 30 million people who are living with HIV, and this is not a single vaccine. This is lifelong treatment for all of these individuals. We are continuing to advocate for dedicated resources to assess and improve the rates of treatment initiation, retention, medication, adherence, and virologic suppression. And we hope also that continued support for health system strengthening will continue to improve uptake and long-term retention of care. We know now from multiple studies that treatment can really be prevention. In other words, if someone is on treatment, and their viral load is essentially suppressed, their ability to transmit the virus is close to zero. And so the more people we can get on treatment successfully, the more we can start to see what many people have called an AIDS-free generation. Thank you, Dr. Katz.